I'm going to start with a question that feels, I don't know, probably weird, I guess, but uh, like uh, you should know the answer to it, and so you almost feel weird or silly at answering it, but you don't have to answer it out loud. It's somewhat rhetorical, but so the question is this, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Okay? And so you're like, yeah, I did. Okay? So, and then I would follow that up with a question of how many times have you been baptized? And uh, some of you, if you're like me, uh, well, I'll save that for just a second. If you're like me, uh, you have maybe um, were in a different denomination or maybe you weren't born into uh, Christianity at all. But uh, I was baptized in the Catholic Church uh, when I was an infant, right? And so that didn't mean anything to me. I don't remember it. Uh, surprisingly enough. And so I, I've been baptized again in what we call believer's baptism. I'm surprised you've entered a Baptist church this morning. And so um, we, we have a lot of um, ideas that we think we know about baptism. And this morning, um, if I say something that you disagree with, I'll say, um, here's, here's the deal. If you want to talk about what I say this morning, I want to talk with you about it, but I want to do it biblically. Okay? So I don't want to debate um, your, your tradition. I don't want to debate your history. I just want to argue from Scripture. And so here's what I, this is the, this is the, the warning, if you will, okay? This is the, the cautionary. But as we get into this this morning, there are, I'll emphasize this, brothers and sisters in Christ. That means they are believers. And, um, and, and so we don't say, hey, they, they don't have it figured out, and we do, and therefore they're not saved. There are brothers and sisters in Christ that read this passage of Scripture differently than I do, that conclude differently than I do. And I would say they're in error biblically. But we need to make a distinction real quick between error and heresy, okay? If you believe error, you might be kept from fruitfulness. You might be um, doing something that uh, is not what's best for you. You might be um, delayed in your maturity, right? There's, there's things that come along with doing something in error, but that's not the same thing as not being saved. Heresy, on the other hand, is the difference between in and out. Heresy is the, the distinction between, it's not just error, it's something, if you believe in it, you've missed the boat altogether in terms of like saving faith. So I wouldn't say that to disagree about baptism or baptism of the Spirit is a heretical error. I would say that there's errors in approaching it and thinking about it a certain way, but that's not the, diff- the distinction between in or out. So if you're somebody that thinks differently about this, I'm going to argue for my perspective this morning, that I would argue is the biblical perspective, therefore the right one, okay? Those are fighting words if you, if you disagree. But either way, what I, what I want to set out is that my job is always to present to you from the text what I think, but I don't want to just not acknowledge that people read this differently, but I'm going to make the case this morning for why I read it the way that I do, okay? And so I will say that at the outset. So the distinction between Error and heresy is an important one, and we're not talking about that this morning. We're just talking about some, some people see that differently, and that's okay. And so if I poke you today, I'm poking hopefully at some weaknesses in your biblical argument, your biblical thinking, not in your um, just, I don't like you, so I'm poking you, okay? So if, if you feel poked today, you know, bone up on your scripture, and then we'll have a discussion, okay? With that being said, let me, let me, read, well, yeah, let me read the whole text. Then I'm going to pray, and then we'll um, just go through it, okay? So it says, um, just by the way, we're we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. I think I said 18 already, but we actually finished 18 last week. So we'll be in 19 verses 1 through 10 this morning. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, 
Paul passed through the inland country, and he came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. But on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. And he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for about two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Father, I pray this morning as we um, come to your word that we would be um, edified, not just in our thinking this morning, but in our, our spirit, in our, in our being in you. Father, I ask that you would take your truth and plant it in our hearts this morning, that you would encourage us by this word to um, be seeking your spirit, to be filled with the spirit, but to think um, rightly about you and how we pursue you and what you do bless us with, Father. So I pray that this would be an encouraging time in your word this morning, that you would help us um, to see what is true and what is not, to um, hear your voice and the word that you've spoken, and that you would help us to have these hearts that can receive spiritual things from you this morning. So equip us with those things by your spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. And I should say, as I normally do, Father, keep me from error so that I don't preach to you error, okay? And so uh, if I say anything this morning, again, that you are not sure about, I promise you that I've done a lot of editing already. I had to, I had to par this down. There are going to be things that pique your interest and you go, but what about that thing? And I promise I have an address for it. I just can't go all the way into every aspect of it this morning. So we're just going to take it as it comes. The major point of this is not actually baptism and speaking in tongues, though that's what we immediately want to fixate on. So um, let's just walk through it this morning. The hinge point of this passage actually comes in verses 4 through 6. So however it is that you understand the meaning of the disciples that he meets, who are these disciples, what is their identity, and then what does it mean that they were baptized in the name of the Lord? And so whatever you think about that will determine what you do or do not agree with in terms of baptism of the Spirit. So what happened while Apollos was at Corinth. So if you weren't here or you've forgotten, what's happened is that Paul has left Ephesus. He went and he traveled to finish his vow in Jerusalem. And then he starts out again and he's been traveling back to Ephesus. And that's what is known as his third, his third missionary journey. Well, as he vacated Ephesus, he left behind Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, a man shows up from Alexandria named Apollos. And we found out last week that Apollos had his own limitations. And he only knew the baptism of John as well, which is something we just found out about these disciples. Well, what happened is Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside and it says they tell him about the way of the Lord more accurately. They they school him in that and then he becomes very prominent. They write a letter letter of recommendation and send him on to Corinth. So Ephesus and Corinth are are uh, somewhat close to each other and so um, you'll see how how the Holy Spirit is um, an important aspect of this later in Paul's writings uh, uh, to the Ephesians in the book of Ephesians and in uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So 
what's happened is Apollos was, has left Ephesus, and now Paul's come back through. So Paul, Apollos, and he's come back through, and he found some disciples. Okay, so let, let's key in real quick on this um, word disciple. So uh, as we went at the beginning of last week, I said um, that the, the, the last thing the Lord Jesus leaves the disciples with is the command to disciple. Go and disciple. That's actually what it says. It doesn't, it doesn't say make disciples. It says, and going, discipling the nations. So inherent in that is, well, what, what does discipling mean? Well, it means obeying all that the Lord Jesus commanded them to do, uh, teaching them to do that. So that's um, what's in there. But before he gets to that command and qualifies what discipleship is, which is teaching them to obey, okay, he says, go and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So a disciple is one, a disciple of Christ, I should say, is one who's been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so I said this, this passage hinges on the identity of the disciples. Now, disciple is uh, just a word that means follower. It means learner, okay? So it doesn't necessarily have a, a Christian connotation in it. Not necessarily. Throughout the book of Acts, Luke uses the word uh, sometimes to refer to people in the church, but sometimes to refer to people like this, who just simply were disciples of John. Okay? So what we're seeing here is Paul coming back behind Apollos, and we find out that these people have sort of something in common with Apollos, which is that they were limited in their knowledge. Okay? So by Jesus's words and definition of disciple, they're not that. They're at least not Great Commission disciples, okay? Because they've not yet been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, they admit by their own words, the, the exact wording is, we don't even know that the Holy Spirit is, okay? So when Paul asked them, what have you, what were you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He, he, he doesn't have like a meter that he walks up and it's not going off, you know, he's like sensing whether or not they have the Holy Spirit. There's something else about them that he's able to know that they're, they're not disciples of Jesus, they're disciples of John. And so he asked this question, I'm going to identify what it is that you identify with. So that's really what makes a disciple. What is it that you identify with? What are you being schooled in? Are you being schooled in Christ? Well, he says, well, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they say, no, we didn't even know what the Holy Spirit is, okay? So there's by their own wording, we're, we're not disciples, at least in the Great Commission sense, of, um, of the Lord. And so um, the call to do this is important, and Paul has been advancing this. Now, you need to know something about the moment. So I've been telling you for the last couple of weeks that this is a unique moment. All of Acts is full of unique moments. Um, it's, it's, and I say that because it is a, a pinnacle point in a transition between what is known as the Old Covenant and what we have now in the New Covenant, which is sort of that division between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, what's happened here is that we have overlapping covenants that since Christ was crucified, since he was resurrected and ascended, now he's, he gives the Great Commission just before he goes up and now he sends them out to do that. Well, the, the, the old covenant is still in place. There's still people that were brought up in the old covenant that had been to the temple, that were trusting in the sacrifices. And so they, there's some playing out where that's going to taper off and eventually it's going to be fully replaced. And so um, we need to get an idea about these overlapping covenants. So um, I don't want to take a whole lot of time on it, but something like this has existed. And this is the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, it is centered on a place. It's centered on the temple, okay? 
If you identify with being God's people, the only way you have a belonging to God and keeping that covenant is it happens in the temple. If you don't go to the temple, if you don't offer sacrifices, well, you're not in the covenant, okay? And one way that you identified a sign of being in that covenant in a physical place was circumcision. God said, hey, I'm going to give you a sign that you can do that shows that you belong to me, and that's this covenant is identified by circumcision. Well, what happens here, we know, is that Jesus comes on the scene, and uh, he's crucified. And so at the cross, we have um, something important that we can all kind of look at as like a transition point. It's, a, it's, it's the hinge point. And from there, after Jesus gives different directions, he says, you know, uh, in that dialogue that I talked about this morning with the Samaritan woman, they have this thing about, well, you say the temple's here and I say the temple's over there and so we, we can just worship God. And Jesus says, the time is coming and is now here. I'm here. The time is coming and is now here where people will worship in spirit and truth. And so what's happened now is now, it's not a place that you have to go. It's not, it's not a, a temple that you have to go worship in, but that you are now the temple of God. And you are the presence of uh, God in the Holy Spirit. So as you go, you, so goes the temple. So the, div- the distinction, one of the main distinctions between the old covenant and the new covenant going forward is that it's not confined to a place. So that wherever you go, so goes the Spirit of God and so goes the covenant, Okay. And so as we see at Pentecost, what happens is when the Holy Spirit comes, all, all these people have traveled in for this, um, for this uh, feast of Pentecost, and they've come from all these different places. And as the Holy Spirit comes and they find out what's happened and who Jesus is and what he's, the promise has arrived now that the Holy Spirit's here, and they're sent out. And so they take the Holy Spirit with them. Well, this occurs a few different times in the book of Acts in the same way, always identifying or initiating into the group of people known as the church, a new group of people. So it happens first at Pentecost with the disciples, okay? So you have people who belong to the Old Covenant who were part of the the Jewish system who went to the temple, and they're the first ones to be initiated. The Holy Spirit falls, right, in the upper room, and here they are in the temple, and then the the people that hear them, remember they say, hey, are you guys drunk? And he says, no, it's only 10 o'clock. Remember, Peter has this dialogue. And then he tells them, hey, what, what do we, they ask, what do we need to be do?" What, what, what do we need to be do? What do we need to do? And he says, you need to repent and then you need to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And they do that and then they leave, okay? So that's the first group. The second group that we see this happen to is the Samaritans, okay? So as the gospel travels out with the Holy Spirit, the, the first place it meets is the Samaritans in Acts chapter eight. And so there's a new group of people. Not, not, they're not full-fledged Jews. They're not um, attending the temple Jews. They're, uh, they represent a new kind of people. And so that's uh, Acts chapter 8. And then Acts chapter 10, we see Cornelius, who represents the Gentile believer. He's, he's, a, he's a God-fearer. He knows of God, but he wasn't a convert to temple Judaism. So as um, Cornelius, a Gentile, gets converted, um, the apostles travel there, and the Holy Spirit, again, falls on a new group of people. And this is the third time that we see the Holy Spirit fall on a group of people. And the, that, that word fall on just means to happen to, Okay. It means it happened. The Holy Spirit happened. And so this is, I want to say, a distinct group of people. So why is this group different from, say, a half um, Jew, which would be a Samaritan, or or a a not Jew at all, which is a Gentile? Well, who are these people? Well, these are people that would have at some point had some kind of identifying feature with John the Baptist's ministry, not necessarily the temple. And they put their faith in John's message, which was very specific, and they've left 
and they don't belong to Judaism, and they don't belong to any other kind of uh, striving to the, that way, but they find out later on that what John promised has actually happened, and that's this moment. So when is that happening? I said, we, to identify this moment, this is something like 25 years after Pentecost, okay? So that's where we're at. So, so somewhere at the, the, uh, John the Baptist's ministry um, has happened, and he, his ministry coincides or overlaps Jesus's. He, he baptizes Jesus, and then Jesus ministers for three and a half years, and then he's crucified and resurrected. So this covenant, where the temple is the central location, is tapering off. It's getting lower and lower. There's fewer and fewer people that are going to belong to this and also be called God's people. And this definitively ends in 70 AD. Why? Because this goes away. Because this temple is destroyed. You can't even complete being faithful to the promises of God to, to, to sacrifice, therefore belonging to him. So it's impossible to belong to the first covenant. Okay? So everybody that is a Jew today, that lives in Israel or is here or anywhere, that claims to be just a Jew and don't, don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, they are living believing that their sins are just building up. Why? Because they, they can't offer an atoning sacrifice. Well, when Jesus shows up as before John um, is, is killed also, he, he identifies, and his identifying of Jesus is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here's what John's ministry did. Is it, it prepared the way for Christ to come, and now we've transitioned out of that old covenant to a new covenant. Okay, so I'm really working on that because the sign of the old covenant was circumcision. And what Paul says, or excuse me, what Peter says at Pentecost is that this is what was foretold when the Holy Spirit comes. Now the new, the new age, the new covenant has arrived. And this was what was promised. This is the sign that the new covenant is here. The Holy Spirit has been given. So in the old covenant, it was circumcision. In the new covenant, it's the Spirit. In Colossians 2, um, 11 says this, In him, that's Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So that's wordy. Here's what he's saying. In Christ, you, you've been circumcised in your heart. You can't do that with hands. That doesn't happen with hands. It's happened spiritually to you. That's why we say something like, he took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. That's a spiritual circumcision, okay? And it says, having been buried with him in baptism. Okay, well, that's identifying with Christ's death in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power and the working of God. If you will click on the second slide there, that will put the um, slides up for them. That would be um, helpful. Okay, so it says, having been buried with him in baptism, you'll be raised through faith the working power of God who raised him from the dead. Talking about the identifying feature now of this covenant is the Spirit. So these guys say, what were you baptized into? And they said, we're baptized into John's baptism. Well, John's baptism was not was not a baptism of the Holy Spirit is here, and it's also not a baptism of believe in the atoning Lamb of God. He said, repent because there's one who's coming after me. And when he gets here, that's the guy. He's the, I'm preparing the way for the Messiah. That's John's message, okay? And so baptism, the, the word literally just means to put into, okay? So whatever you think you know about baptism, it just means to initiate into. So to be baptized is to be put into God, to be put into Christ and by the name of something. And then there's a method. And the method doesn't mean anything other than what it signifies. And what Colossians is saying here is what, what signified in you going down into the water and being brought up out of the water is identifying in Christ's death and also his resurrection. So you are raised 
uh, to, to new life because you died in the flesh and you're raised spiritually, okay? So this is our sign that we have that God's given us that says we belong to this new covenant and now we have the Spirit. So John's message is believe in the one who is to come after him. So what do these guys actually believe? Who, these, these disciples that have heard John's preaching, imagine this morning that you looked out there and on the corner of Yosemite out here, there's a man and he, he's drug this kiddie pool and he's set it on the sidewalk and he's preaching to you before you walk into that church, don't do it. Why? Because, and then he, he's got this lamb on a leash, okay? And he brings this lamb up and he says, I'm going to kill this lamb and it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay for your sins. And you need to come out here and you got to smear this, lamb, this lamb's blood all over you so that your sins are covered, okay? He's telling you, don't go in the church. That's the wrong way. That's, don't do it because this is the only way you can be saved, okay? That is the equivalent of what John was saying. He was outside in the wilderness, not at the temple, and he was saying that way, the offer of, to be baptized for repentance is not something like you think of, well, I repent of my sin and so I baptize. They didn't think of repenting of their sin in the same way that you do. Why? Because their hope was in their sin being covered by this lamb that was sacrificed. And what John's actually saying is that you need to come to me and repent of that way because one's coming after me that's actually going to pay for that sin. That's, that's what John's message is. And for anybody that believed that message, they got into that water. And John baptized them. And they left believing that whoever was coming after John was the real lamb. So if you saw somebody out there today and they were telling you that, okay, that would be the equivalent of what John was doing at the same time that the temple existed and there were sacrifices. Does that make sense? So um, that's not convincing, okay? What you need to hear is that John's message of repentance is a foreign message to a Jew. That was not something they thought of, okay? You don't get baptized for your sin. You go to the temple and offer your lamb for your sin. And John says, no, repent of sin, repent and believe in the one who's coming after me. Okay, that's the message that they've gotten. And they've received that and they left. So this, this is where um, John, John says, by, by his own words, I, I baptize with water. Um, let me get there. There we go. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, so there's his promise. This is the declaration of what he did. And, for, and, and then we find out that people came in droves and they did. And it says they fulfilled and affirmed God's prepar preparatory way for the Messiah because they came out and listened to what John the Baptist said. But there were other people that didn't, which were the Pharisees and the scribes. They did not like John the Baptist. And so they did not listen to him. But then in uh, John 131, it says, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Why? Because John was foretold in the Old Testament that there would be one who would make the way straight for the Messiah. So John was like this, this sign. It was like, being here, here it is. The guy after this is going to be the Messiah. And he points right to Jesus and says, there, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the guy on Yosemite. Okay? And he's saying this at the same time where the covenant's in full force. That's, that's, a, that's a big jump for most people. And so that's why... You, you get people who are now in this separate group, people that were baptized by John, who've sort of left um, the, any kind of trust in uh, the, the Jewish system of um, sacrifices, and, and they've, they've left with this trust. And so that's who these disciples are. 
So John's baptism was one essentially of this. It was preparatory and it was pointing the way forward. It said, behold, there's one coming. He's better than me. That's the guy to put your trust in. So it was looking forward. And it says, but um, as, as Paul comes and he finds the disciples and then he tells them something. He asked, he had the dialogue. He said, hey, what were you baptized into? Uh, not the Holy Spirit. And then he says, the one who, um, he, he identifies John. Let me just read it so I don't have to keep trying to paraphrase it, okay? Here, he says, um, he said to them, into what were you baptized? And they say into John's baptism. So then Paul's going to identify the whole thing. So this is the beginning of the hinge point. Paul says, John baptized with a baptism of repentance telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. Okay. Punctuation. Period. Then he says, that is Jesus. This is new information. Okay. What they did not know, John was saying, hey, there's one coming after me. That's the guy. He's the Messiah. Pay attention to him. This is, this is revelatory information to these disciples. That's, this is the key point of the passage. Okay. So these disciples hear now that Jesus is the Christ. That's, that's new information. And then it says, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Let me get back to it because this is important. So, um, okay, yes. He said, telling the people to believe in Jesus, Jesus, on, on hearing this, they, they were baptized on hearing this. So the question here is this. Did Paul take these guys and baptize them? And I'm going to tell you I don't think so. And here's why. Because it says on hearing this, that's when they're baptized. So they had put their faith in the word of John that whoever comes after Jesus, and they, or excuse me, comes after him is the, is the Christ, and they're baptized for that. They believe in that, but they leave. They don't come back. They've heard of this ministry, and somehow they have this information, but they don't ever go back. They don't have any other information, and there's, they're without the name of the Lord Jesus and without the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells them, let me fill in the blank for you. Jesus was the guy. On hearing this, they're now baptized. What they were baptized for was repentance, okay? Trusting in that, and Paul's filling in the blank. In the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what you were baptized in. On hearing this, they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why do I say that? If it's something else. If Paul actually goes, first of all, he says later on in, in uh, Corinthians, he says, I'm thankful I didn't baptize many of you guys. In fact, my ministry was not baptism. So it wasn't Paul's ministry to go and, and baptize people in water. And what we find out just after this is that he laid his hands on them and then they received the Holy Spirit. So if, if he does take them down into water and baptize them, they have something like three baptisms in view here. We have first their baptism by John, then we have Paul's baptism, and then we have the Holy Spirit baptism. And breaking that into that many parts doesn't make any sense for the text. On hearing this, they're baptized in the name. And the emphasis is not on the baptism, but in the name, the name of the Lord Jesus, and that's why we're baptized. So he says, you know, on, on hearing this, they're baptized into the name, and that is what we do in, in a trust in the name and all the benefits thereof of the name. So on hearing this, they take on the name or they're initiated into. Remember, baptism means to be put into. So let me say it this way. On hearing this, they are put into the name of the Lord Jesus. That makes sense to me. They had believed on a message. The one coming after me is the Messiah. I'll, I'll believe that. I'll put my faith in that. So they baptize for repentance. Don't hear anything about it until this moment. 
that was foreseen. God knew this providentially, sends Paul, he finds these guys, and then he fills in the blank. Jesus is the name. And then, oh, that's what we were baptized into. And then he lays his hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. So what we assume is that Paul baptized them, but I I don't think that makes sense of the text. A couple other things happen that lead me to believe that, and I'll fill them in as we get to it. So it says that Paul then laid his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. These are two things that are evidence of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom advancing. And this is what um, Peter had quoted as um, what was foretold for the promise, that, the, that God would pour out his Spirit on all people and they would speak um, to foreign people and that they would prophesy. And so when you hear prophecy, you think fortune-telling. That's not what prophecy means. Prophecy means to, to essentially be a mouthpiece for the truth of God's word. What they're doing is they're declaring God's truth. And they're doing it um, in, in a foreign language, okay? So tongues here is not um, a, a prayer language or, or gobbledygook or random gibberish that makes you feel spiritual, okay? Tongues means a language, okay? So here's where, this is where people depart. So some people say, this is a second work of the Holy Spirit. This is something that's available, but you'd have to conclude is optional. Let me say that again. This is something you'd have to conclude is available, but it's optional. Why? Because if they didn't have it before, but they're believers. If they did not have the Holy Spirit before, but they're believers and they're in the covenant, then by Jesus' words, um, it's kind of unnecessary to be baptized in his name and in the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that kind of makes a mess of the Great Commission. But furthermore, it would mean like, if Paul hadn't run into these guys and had not given them the Holy Spirit, they would have still been saved. And I don't think it would have been included in Acts for that very reason if that was the case. So because of all of those things culminating, I think it, we, we need to conclude that the point of this is that there's a new baptism because this represents a, a separate group of people. So we have first the Samaritans, then we have the Gentiles, and now we have a group of people who only know John's baptism, put their faith in something, but it had not come to fullness. And now that they've been put into the name of the Lord Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit, okay? And the evidence of that is the same evidence that he gave at Pentecost and the same evidence that he gave to the Samaritans and the same evidence that he gave to the Gentiles, that they would be able to speak um, truths about God and they would do it. And, and so what Paul goes on later to help us understand tongues, I'm not going to spend a long time on this this morning, but tongues uh, is called by Paul a sign to, not to believers, or excuse me, not to, um, let me say this, not to unbelievers, but to believers. Did I say that right? I think so. So as you continue on through the text here, it says he goes into the synagogue after this. These guys were not part of the synagogue, but after that, Paul then goes in and he begins reasoning with them. And it says, after a while, there were some who persisted in unbelief. So we have that identifying feature. And then it says, and then, um, many came after they leave, and he goes, he reasons for quite a while in the hall of Tyrannus, and he says this continued uh, for two years, and then he says, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so the point of the filling of the Spirit and being able to prophesy and speaking in tongues is so that more and more people would be able to be added to their number. And he says, these disciples, in verse 7, it says, there was 12 in all, and then in verse 10, it says, and then all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That is the, that's the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is not self-focused. It is outward-focused, and it is Christ-focused. Okay, 
So here's where you have a departure. This is where some people say, hey, look, you, you, if you haven't had the baptism of the Spirit, it looks like this. Its, it's identifying feature is speaking in tongues and, and, and being able to prophesy. And so you ought to seek that experience. And if you haven't, then you don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Or you don't have maybe even the Holy Spirit at all. But that's, that, that contradicts most of what Scripture has to say about tongues, about the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit, and how we're even included at all in the covenant. Okay? And so that's where my, my pushback against that is there. It's, it's the biblical argument, not the one about whether or not we've experienced it. But then you have to go with the logical argument against this. Okay? Which is this. Paul says... Not everyone is going to speak in tongues. Yes, it's a gift that's been given for a purpose, but everybody doesn't do that. And he says, ah, you know, the thing about it is, is that prophesying is better. Why? Because prophecy builds other people up. And he says, speaking in a tongue, it builds you up. And, he, and when he says that, he kind of says it in a derogatory way. It puffs you up. Look at me. Look how great I am. The attention's on me for a moment. And he says, you're doing this. And he says, He's talking to the Corinthians. You guys are all speaking in tongues. And he says, if if an unbeliever comes in your midst, they don't have any idea what's going on. They they don't know what you're saying, okay? So hear me. This is not, I I believe, talking about something that we are supposed to aspire to, to be be baptized again in the Holy Spirit, okay? So, but here's here's the distinction that needs to be made. Don't conflate this or confuse this with being filled with the Spirit. That is something that we are told to do. It's an imperative. It's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. And what's more than that is that the work of the Spirit in your life is indicative of whether or not you have taken that command and whether or not the Holy Spirit is present doing that work in you. Okay? So it's sort of cyclical, but track with me for a minute. So in Acts 1, where, where, where Jesus is, is telling the disciples to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. He says, I'll baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire, but wait until power has come. And then the end of that promise is waiting for the power so that you will be my witnesses. So that's, the, that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. God empowers you and he, he includes you in the covenant and then he does that so that you can be a, a witness for him. You'll be a witness for him in word and in deed. In word and in deed. What you speak and how you act should be a witness for God, for witness for Christ. And so that's why we're filled with the Spirit. Jesus said, you will, I'll, I'll clothe you with power for the express purpose of being my witness. When John um, is preparing the way for Jesus, we're told that John is filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Um, there's this funny little exchange where um, Elizabeth, who's John's mother, is she's well past um, childbearing age, so it's sort of a surprise. She, gets, she, she's, uh, she, she has John, and she's praying with him, and then Mary who has Jesus, she conceives Jesus by the Holy Spirit, and then Mary comes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and it says the, the baby John leapt in her womb. So even as a, as a fetus, okay, the, the baby John the Baptist, full of the Holy Spirit, recognizes and points to the joy of Christ, okay? And so the work of the Holy Spirit is to point to Christ. And so we, we see that, and then what what John's message actually is, is that I must decrease, he must increase, I'm not worthy even to untie his sandal, okay? So he's always pointing to Jesus. If the Holy Spirit is working in your life, it is a humbling work. It does not make much of you. It is not a look at me, look how great I am, look at all my gifts. It is, I must decrease, look how great Christ is. It it is a work of pointing to what is better, what is best, 
So the Holy Spirit's ministry is not self-focused. It's not to pursue his power. It's not to pursue the gifts. It is to pursue Christ, okay? So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is important. And then not to conflate the baptism with the filling, but here in Ephesians 5, where I want to end up, okay, this morning. Well, I don't have it, so let me just read it to you. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15, says this. Look carefully how, how you walk. Not as wise, but, excuse me, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. So therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine. This is the key verse in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so what, Ephesians 5, I started in, um, in the key the key verse there is in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine because that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a present tense. It says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. So the emphasis here is not on the end result of the filling of the Spirit. You, you can't do that. It's, it's, it's Christ who pours out the Spirit. It, it's God who gives us faith. Uh, so he's pouring it out, and, he, and we're commanded to be being filled with it. So let me sort of round this out. The command to be filled is not a command to produce or pursue even something that you can't procure but has to be given to you. It is to engage in the activity of receiving it, okay? And when Paul talks about the distinction of pursuing the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit, it's always in distinction to the flesh and whether or not you are doing something in the flesh, okay? So here's where this is all going to tie together. I promise, I'm sure of it, I'm certain. You do not, at any point this week, think to yourself, well, am I baptized in the Holy Spirit? Like, I know that wasn't on your heart. Like, not once. Raise your hand if you did. Okay? I know that didn't occur to you. What did happen, though, is that at some point, you engage with somebody who does not know God. And you need the Holy Spirit to be in you and to shine through you, to be a witness for Christ. That happened. You also encountered temptation. And you needed the Holy Spirit to help you be strong and to show you the way out of that and to keep you um, in faith through that temptation. And so whether or not you availed yourself of what has been made available has to do with this exact command. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing as me saying, be drinking water if you're thirsty. And you're thirsty. You're thirsty. At some point, you are thirsty, and if I say, be filled with water, how do you do that? Well, you have to engage in the act of drinking, do you not? Okay, so what is being told here, what you're being told to do is to be being filled with the Holy Spirit by availing yourself of spiritual things and not of fleshly things, okay? So how do you do that? Well, at every point that you did encounter that, you didn't ask, am I baptized by the Spirit? But you did encounter things that you needed the Spirit for, and the question is whether or not you engaged in that, being filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, the, the distinction to that and why it's important is that you can be filled with wine. Why does he use wine? Well, because wine is sort of this, this thing that we can look to to give us a, a false 
joy, a false solution, okay? So you're down and things are difficult and you're not sure what to do. And so you're not really joyful about it. You don't really have a solution to anything, but you can drink and feel better about it. And that would control your emotions. It controls what you're doing in every situation. And he says, in, in distinction to that, be filled with the Spirit because that's, that's better. That's what's right. He, he says the days are evil. He doesn't mean the daytime is evil. He says when, when, when what you're going through is hard, when, when walking in the day makes it difficult, okay? The only way to make it through that is to be filled with the Spirit. So avail yourself of that. That's, that's the command there. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So the question is not whether or not you have the Spirit. It's whether or not you're availing yourself of the Spirit that you have. And because, um, because these uh, occurrences happen so frequently, it's an ongoing command. It's not, I was filled and now I don't need it anymore. Paul and Peter, everywhere we look and we see the apostles doing amazing things. By the power of the Holy Spirit, it says, and they were full of the Holy Spirit. When Stephen gives his testimony, right, as he's being martyred, it says, and full of the Holy Spirit, okay? That's, that's being asked, asking God to fill you with his Spirit for whatever purposes that he has for you. Are you tracking with that? I did not go nearly as far into tongues as I was going to. You're welcome. But it's an important, here's, I'm going to lay the groundwork for this. There's a spiritual battle that is occurring in Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit is, is um, a necessary component of that. And, and this, we're going to look at that next week, and, and we're going to see demons and all, all kinds of crazy stuff. But don't be fixated on the, that kind of idea of an experience or, or some kind of, um, you know, somebody telling you, well, you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you do this or something like that. No, if you've been baptized by identifying in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, then you have the Holy Spirit. All who have um, the Spirit of God are, are, excuse me, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's what Romans 8 says, okay? So you have the Spirit, avail yourself of it, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And now I'll end this morning in Romans 15 with this blessing. May the Lord God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will abound in hope. Notice that in believing, okay, the hope comes from the Holy Spirit, not from other things. So be, be filled with the Holy Spirit this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, lift his countenance to you, and fill you with his Spirit. Give you peace.